Let's humbly approach Almighty Yahweh in prayer. Father, we come before you on this very blessed time, this day that you have created. This day is yours for us. We're so grateful that we can come and learn your word as also as well as fellowship with the brethren of like faith to commune through your spirit, those that are here and those that who may be afar. We pray that you will bless them also. Be with us as we strive to do your will. Be with us as we go through our lives. Give us the strength and the, the protection that we need in this world. We also ask a personal prayer here for Sister Drema, who will go under a procedure next week. She would be with her, comfort her, and guide her through this operation. We thank you for your blessings and for your always being with us, standing with us, as we seek you in all that we do. In Yahshua's name we pray. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Well, I want to uh, welcome Brother Rex Frank and family all the way from the Philippines to be with us. He said the last time he was here was four years ago. The place has changed a little since then. But uh, we're always glad to have them here and other visitors who come occasionally. Today we'll focus on a topic becoming increasingly rare and unavoided, regardless of the affiliation. Make no mistake, we humans are prone to mistakes. It's built into our DNA. And because they are inevitable, the best we can do is try to avoid them and then learn from them. Don't repeat them. You know, with the right frame of mind, the right heart that we should have as Yahweh's people, we can overcome. Even serious mistakes don't have to be traumatic but could and should be valuable teaching moments for each of us. We've all been through, I'm sure, many trials through this life. But we have learned from them. We've grown from them, hopefully. But mistakes happen. Did you know that Coca-Cola was a goof and sticky notes were never meant to be invented? They were mistakes, serendipities that turned out to become windfalls. In 1886, a pharmacist named John Pemberton cooked up a medicinal syrup in a large brass kettle slung over an open flame and stirred it with a big old oar. When he was done, he figured he had created a fine tonic for people who were tired, nervous, or plagued with sore teeth. He and assistant mixed it with ice water, sipped it, and proclaimed it tasty. When it came for another batch, his assistant poured in carbonated water. Instead of medicine, these men had created a fizzy beverage consumed by the world around called Coca-Cola. Yellow sticky notes, known as post-it notes, were misconceived when a 3M researcher tried to improve adhesive tape 
What he got was a semi-sticky adhesive, not exactly what he wanted, and then he didn't know what to do with it. He figured it had some kind of value, but what do I do? Well, another 3M researcher happened to be in church, and his, his uh, songbook, uh, his uh, bookmarks that he stuck in his hymnal kept falling out. What he needed was something kind of semi-sticky, something that would hold it for a while, just like that weak glue his colleagues had accidentally created. So in 1980, the post-it note became a huge hit. Another 3M researcher came up with a cool substance called Scotchgard. But that wasn't what she intended to create. She happened to drop a glob on her tennis shoe and notice as the tennis shoe aged and got older, that spot with the scotch guard there stayed new. Stayed new looking. It wasn't what she intended, but what she created was something a lot greater than what she was wanting. It grew out of an attempt to make a synthetic rubber to be used in airplane fuel lines. And instead, through a mistake, got something we can all benefit from. It took three more years, but they had their Scotchgard fabric protector. Innkeeper Ruth Wakefield was baking butter drop dew cookies back in the 1930s, using a recipe that dated back to colonial times. She got an idea. How about I cut up a Nestle chocolate bar and put the chunks in the batter? And then when they melt, they make a nice melty cookie. Well, the problem is the chunks didn't milk didn't melt, and so what she got was cookies studied with gooey chocolate chips. The result became one of the most popular cookies of all time. Other accidents included rubber tires, silly putty, the pacemaker, and penicillin. Writer James Joyce once wrote, mistakes are the portals for discovery. What he may not known and realized was Mistakes work on several levels to an advantage. Some of those valuable lessons in Scripture come when lessons are learned from personal and collective mistakes that the Bible calls sins. One of Yahweh's characteristics is that he uses man's mistakes as sins not to teach important lessons, but also to bring us to salvation. The fundamental problem is that most people don't know what constitutes sin. If you don't know what it is, how can you know what to avoid? The masses can't even accept abortional murder, thinking, how can that be sin? They have reasoned their way out of any spiritual danger, all the while ignoring what common sense says is obviously and clearly wrong. Ask the man or woman on the street, go up there on the road, stop a car, don't stop any cars, but if they happen to stop, ask them, hey, what's sin? And you'll get a whole variety of different answers. Mostly ambiguous, fuzzy answers like, well, it's whatever displeases the Heavenly Father. Or, sin is doing wrong. Or, sin is separating from Yahweh. Well, certainly these are what sin does and what results from sin. But I want to know, how do you go about literally sinning? How do you do that? 
Most people don't know. They don't know. Even Bible believers don't know. What is it that displeases Yahweh? What is wrong that separates us from Yahweh? What is it? The fundamental roots of sin are never addressed. We like to keep sin amorphous so that it becomes less dangerous, I guess, less unidentified and unjudged. So it can be anything we choose it to be. Whatever we think is sin can be sin. If you condemn sin today, you're accused of judging, which scripture allows because we're not condemning. They think you're condemning. Judging also means discerning. In fact, that's the major reason it is. We have to discern right from wrong. We have to. That's part of our job as believers in the truth. Yeah, I got to judge. I got to discern. We're supposed to discern those within the... Uh, Yeah, discern those in the assembly, but Yahweh judges those without. We have no right to condemn them. That's his job. But we do have to discern right from wrong, and that's what we do. So you're accused of it. So make it more palatable. Take the poison label off the bottle itself and reduce it to something like contents may be unhealthy. And the kinder and gentler you make the label, the more sinister is the poison. See, Yahweh doesn't mince words. He tells us exactly what sin is. 1 John 3, 4, a simple definition. A simple definition is the transgression of his law. That's what it is. Literally, the Greek says that everyone committing sin is doing lawlessness, anomia in the Greek. The grammatical construct of this verse in the Greek renders sin and lawlessness identical. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. Same thing. The present active participle means the habit of doing sin. As we learned last Sabbath, living on your own terms while ignoring his terms amounts to offering strange fire. You do it your way. He says, that's strange fire. That's not authorized. You don't do it your way. You do it my way. You either live his way or you don't. You know, the truth is not Heinz 57. It's one way. And we've got to learn what that one way is and get on that way. I was once asked, are believers really expected to be able to take off work on the Sabbath and the feasts and stay employed? What about when your job requires you to work on the Sabbath occasionally in order to support a family? What do you say? I say, Does Yahweh accept extenuating circumstances in his law? Oh, you can do this. You should do this. But, 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 there's this, you don't have to if if this, this and this is happening. So you don't let your employer dictate how and when you worship because that's dictating your faith. Not unless he can grant you salvation. If you yourself don't make a proactive move to find another line of work if necessary, nothing's going to change. You've got to make the change. He's not going to make it. can't just hang around. Maybe something will happen, and then I can start getting off on Sabbath. That's not going to happen. You've got to make the change. He isn't going to make it happen. You have to make the change happen. When my son Ryan was in school, high school, he, he wanted so much to play basketball and some of the other sports they had. But, of course, their games are always on 
Sabbath, Friday night or Sabbath. We, I went to talk to the coach. I said, is there any accommodations that you guys could do that he could play maybe once in a while? He wouldn't budge. I wouldn't budge either. So Ryan never had that opportunity. He would have loved it, I'm sure, and he would have been good at it. Couldn't do it. Then one day I got a call from the, the, the principal, and because uh, I had sent a note saying Ryan's going to have to be off for a week for the Feast of Tabernacles. He tried to argue me out of it. He wouldn't compromise. He wouldn't give him an excused absence. And I said, you know what? He's been keeping the feast days for 16 years now, all his life. I know school is important, but when he leaves the school, he's still going to be keeping it the rest of his life. You're not going to change his beliefs or my stand. So either we get an excused absence or we don't. Well, then he kind of backed off. Well, now the Supreme Court has, or not the Supreme, but the federal court has said that people with dedicated, sincere beliefs, religious beliefs, must be made accommodate, must be accommodated for uh, time off for excused absences from school. So we got that backing now, but we didn't have it back then. See, those are learned lessons that we had to learn, that the Sabbath is not compromisable. And since law is an emotionally charged word today, the biblical meaning of sin as law-breaking has been dumbed down. We don't really call it that. See, we, we mess with words in our culture all the time. We use euphemisms all the time. We use letters. Instead of telling about a certain lifestyle, we call it LBG, whatever it is. We use letters to kind of hide it. That's what we do. The biblical meaning of sin is breaking the law. But that's been dumbed down. No need to feel guilty for your actions or lifestyle. It's okay. Just do it your way and Yahweh will find a way to accept it. I'm sorry. No, he won't. He's made it clear in his word. Yeah, we're hard-nosed about it because we're trying to live his word. In our culture, nothing is your fault. Not even your own behavior anymore. Something in the criminal's past caused him to do that. It's not really his fault. It was his upbringing. So that supposedly gives him a pass. You hear it all the time. You hear it in commercials. It's not your fault that you are the way you are. Just take our pill and you can be different. It's not your fault. Adam passed the blame of sin on to Eve, and she laid it on the serpent. His fault. Her fault. When no one takes the responsibility for sin, nothing changes. It just keeps snowballing, getting worse and worse, and it just gets over and over and over till it infuses everything. The big obstacle to salvation, of course, is sin. Without knowing what constitutes sin, you can't deal with it and turn from it. We've got a guy who tried to explain. I'm going to probably bring this up in a future message. He used all these common arguments so he don't have to obey. And, uh, you know, when the young man asked Yasha, he said, none of that, none of what you're doing has any bearing on salvation. Young man asked Yasha, what do I do to have eternal life? He said, what? What? Go your own way? Do your own thing? Somehow you'll get through? No, he said, keep the commandments. And then the guy had to argue that, go through them. And Yasha explained, you know, what commandment? You know, you know, honor your father and mother, don't kill, don't steal. Well, I've done all that. Then he got to the root of his problem. He had a, a covetous problem. 
But Yahshua didn't say, oh, well, commandment keeping has nothing to do with salvation. You're okay there, buddy. Don't worry about it. You know, without knowing what constitutes sin, you can't deal with it and turn from it. I have to know what road hazards are out there, and that's why there's signs on the road to tell me so I can avoid them. I don't want to go too fast because it could be a hazard to me and other drivers. That's a law I have to obey. Dangers await me when I get behind the wheel if I plan to drive safely. Now, if I plan to just freewheel it and do whatever I want, I won't be safe, and somebody's going to get hurt. Maybe me. Sin impacts every relationship, every existing bond here on this earth. In Genesis 3, we find that with each violation of those relationships came a curse, a curse on this earth, a curse on the family. First of all, because of sin, man was separated from Yahweh and became subject to death. There wasn't any death at the time, but Yahweh says, now you brought in death on this, this world. He brought in death. So I guess the animals kept living on forever. He said there was no death. Surely the arm of Yahweh is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, says Isaiah 59, 1-2. But your iniquities have separated you from Elohim. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Oh, maybe that's why he's not answering certain prayers. People are not doing his ways. They're not obedient to him. Who is not going to hear? You're not going to get in line with me. Why should I be favorable to you until you do? Second, man was separated from man as the curse upon Adam and Eve brought conflict into their own marriage, no doubt, and into their family, sons. One kills the other. All because of sin. Sin lurks in every baby born in the world. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. The NRSV, New Revised Standard Version, put it this way. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. So there's a sin nature in the human being that we have to overcome. And sometimes it takes our whole life. Man's sinful act in Eden also cursed the ground. He was separated from the way it used to be. Just go out and pick the low-hanging fruit, you know. That's why there was no death, because even the fruit... You know, the trees lived, the fruit was, was the food. But now man had to go out and dig in the ground, had to toil, break up the ground, had to water it, had to weed it. All these things came up because now man's lifestyle had changed. His sinful act cursed the ground. And he was separated in a real sense from nature. He had to toil by the sweat of his brow and struggle against the earth that became cursed. Things died. Bugs came in. Disease came into the crops. Disease came into his life. All these things from sin. Every broken home, every shattered friendship, every argument, every disagreement, every pain, every tear can somehow be traced to some kind of sin. Some kind of sin resulting from human stubbornness. We have to understand sin. To help us do this, we will answer five questions the first of which we've kind of already answered, what is sin? Anything that's devastating in sin needs a definition so we can avoid it. Just saying there are harmful things lurking in the jungle, so beware. What does that do? How does that help? There could be snakes, alligators, spiders. We don't know what's out there. 
scorpions, lions, tigers, bears, plague-carrying insects, quicksand, dangers everywhere. We've got to know what it is. So they always, Yahweh gives a definition what sin is. Fundamental definition, transgression of Yahweh's law. That's the ba- basic definition. But you know that's not all sin is because there are applications that go beyond that. 1 John 3, 4, of course, that is just the fundamental foundation of what the essence of sin is. It all goes back, boils down to that. But Yahweh adds further refinement. And 1 John 5, 17 says, all unrighteousness is sin. Unrighteousness. Something that's not right. Adakia, it means not being right with Yahweh or man. It means we need to live a higher level of righteousness and honor in our lives. Unforgiveness includes injustice, which is unrighteousness. It's a sin to treat others unfairly. There are millions of ways we can be unfair with one another. And remember, not all sins lead to death. Some require restitution, and that's how in the scriptures they dealt with crime and bad things. They made people restore. And if it's a bad crime, it's restored double, maybe ten times as much. Don't just throw him in jail and make everybody else pay for his living. They had to do it, deal with it themselves because they were the ones guilty, not the culture, not the society. Regardless, any sin in one's life affects their worth. Who Yahweh's wish and it needs to be repented of. Yahshua said in Matthew seven twenty one that those who do Yahweh's will will enter into the kingdom. Not everyone that says unto me, Master, Master, shall enter into the kingdom, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Master, Master, have we not prophesied in your name? There's proof. We prophesied. It came to pass. It did it in your name. How can you say we're not of you? You know, a lot of the heretics going around in Yasha's day were doing the same thing. Sometimes they hit it. Sometimes they, were, they missed the mark. But I'm sure when they hit it, they thought, hey, look, look at us. We, we, we've got the truth. And in, the, in your name, there are many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Why? You that work iniquity. Iniquity. Those who practice sin will not enter the kingdom. Look it up in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It gives you a list of those sins that if you're one that indulges in these unrepentedly, you're shutting yourself out of everlasting life. Those who work lawlessness won't inherit the kingdom. Failure to do good is another aspect of sin. Failure to do good. You ever thought about that? James 4.17 says, To him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Do good means to be noble, honorable, morally good. When you avoid that or reject that, that's morally right, you sin. When you take advantage of others, that's sin. When you borrow, don't give back, you sin. When you promise and commit and don't follow through, that's considered sin. Because it involves lying and all sorts of other things. All of those shows a lack of integrity, honesty, and trustworthiness. 
Yahweh's people are supposed to be better than that. If you come across someone in dire straits and you have ability to help, but you refuse, you walk right on by. What does that sound like? <laughs> what does that sound like? That sounds like the old uh, parable that Yasha gave. Even in our secular laws, we're obligated to stop and help somebody in a life-threatening situation. You go across somebody on the highway in a terrible traffic accident, no one else is around. You're obligated to stop and help that person some way. Our, even our laws say that, at least they do in Missouri and probably other states as well. You're obligated to do that. That's a biblical principle. That's only moral and righteous, and that's the good Samaritan who helped the injured man in, on the road when all the highfalutin Pharisees moved away as fast as they could from this poor guy been beaten and lying there half dead, but they wouldn't lift a finger. They were too good for that, I guess, too good for that. Not only did this guy help him, got him to an inn where he could get help, but he paid the innkeeper, says, okay, I'm going to pay his, you know, his room, and I've got to go away, but when I come back, if you need more money, I'll give that to you too. Now there is a good Samaritan, and the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They were, they were mongrels, they figure. Spiritual mongrels brought in from previous wars and repopulated from the conqueror. And they didn't like them. They didn't like Samaritans. They're from Samaria. And they're, they're, you know, Yasha said, look at it differently. They're people and you need to help them. These additional definitions of sin struck at the heart of the problem with the religious leadership that Yahshua battled. They dotted all the, the I's and crossed all the T's. That wasn't not a problem. They did that. When it came to the letter of the law, man, they were right on. Spot on. But they missed the weightier matters. The law goes further than that. The law refines us and teaches us how to treat others correctly and righteously. They didn't get that part. And that's what Yahshua came to do. In fact, he spent most of his life doing that. You notice that? He's always helping people, feeding them, healing them, teaching them how to live better lives. That was the major part of his ministry, is to help them. Just the opposite. But he also taught obedience as well. That's the part people miss today, too. The good results that obedience was intended to have, he showed them that. They ignored the moral, honorable, and principled aspects, the higher level things of obedience. And these were the priests. They should have known better. Good night. How do you become one? That should be in your DNA too. But it wasn't them. They lacked righteous acts like being fair, loving, doing good to others, even when others were not nearly so holy as they were. You know, they look askance at that poor lady and the widow's might, you know, drops her little duck it into the, the temple treasury. They didn't think that was anything. It was everything she had. It was everything for her. It was nothing to them. And then there is the sin that results from a lack of faith. We see this in Romans 14.23. Paul says, For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. The word is pistis and means moral conviction. You're just doing it to be doing it. Or you're doing it for the honor of someone else. 
that ain't right. That ain't right. You don't, you don't have a conviction for what's right there. Faith means a conviction or a belief respecting our relationship to Yahweh and sacred things, generally with the idea of holy fervor. We do it because we're compelled to do it, because we love Yahweh. Going through the motions, playing the game wasn't it. Oh, they could look good to an outsider from a distance. Oh, man, look at those guys. Holy man. I remember we had a guy stop in one time, but my folks did, and uh, uh, he had on his license plate, holy man. I thought, wow, that's pretty, pretty arrogant. <laughs> I'm not holy. I don't know any of anybody who's really, you know, deserving of being called a holy man. But he's showing everybody. You know, it shows a lack of moral character. Ethical weakness, a wishy-washy, milk-toast believer, indecisive, who can't make a stand, no courage of conviction, can't get past the milk of the word. So summing up, sin includes not just transgression of the letter of the law, but also an unrighteous act, not doing the good you know and know you should do, a lack of faith. Those are all sins in Yahweh's eyes. You must be all in when you walk this walk. You know, man is like a horse. that even though he's in a lush pasture, everything he wants, beautiful pasture, can run around, sunshine, beautiful. He has to jump the fence and land into a mucky quagmire. He just can't stand it. He's got to sin. That's man. He'd rather leap the wall, exit Yahweh's commands, throw it in, and get mired in the slime pit of sin. You know, Yahweh has given his law externally and has even expressed it internally in the heart of man when he created him. That's what we call a conscience. People have consciences. I don't know of anybody really, truly who doesn't. I mean, they act like maybe some of the worst criminals don't have consciences, but I think maybe they push it out. They ignore it. They push it out, push it away. Romans 2.15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, so it's there, their conscience also bearing witness. So along with it, they got a conscience that said, hey, this is the way, walk you in it. And their thoughts the mean while accusing or excusing one another. Moffat says they exhibit the effect of the law written on their hearts, their consciences corroborating it, And the last part of that from the New Revised Standard Version says, and their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them on the day Yahshua judges the secret thoughts of man. Yahshua has to figure it all out. I'm glad I don't have to judge anybody because I couldn't figure it all out. He knows what truly is in the heart, and he knows what's there, and he knows that he's got to judge by what's truly there. Deep down inside, the inner conscience, people know what's right and wrong. Don't let them fool you. They also realize that Yahweh's standards are important. It's still the biggest bookseller in the world. They know it's important. They may not read it, but it looks good on the shelf. And, you know, holy man, I can walk around with it, make it look good. Don't have to read it. They also realize Yahweh has standards. But in their stubborn nature, they convince themselves that they can live outside of them. And they're supported by doctrines that support that. Justified by such teachings that say you don't have to 
do anything. We've all heard it. Yahweh's statutes are called holy and just and good. There's nothing impure, unfair, or evil in them. There is no sane reason to want to break them because they're all good. They lead to good. They lead to a good life. They lead to something deep down inside that feels right, and it feels right all the time. And there's no sane reason to break them or throw them out. Obedience is the path of blessing and long life. We're not trying to earn anything. If we're trying to earn anything, why didn't Yahshua say, Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said, what did you say? What must I do to attain eternal life? Oh, you don't have to do anything. Just think good thoughts. You don't, you know, you know think, uh, think grace and love and faith. No, he didn't say that. Here's what you got to do. Become honorable in your life by obeying my word. You know, it's the rebellious nature of man to live any way he wants to. Any way but Yahweh's way. Any way but Yahweh's way. Yet, there he stands at the end of the long road. And you're looking down that long road in your life. And there he stands waiting for you. And he's not going to move. What are you going to do? When you finally reach him, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? He's there. He wants an accounting. You can't get around it. A reckoning is coming. It's kind of smart to get in line with it now, isn't it? As we have read, once you know the truth and do it not, you sin. Sin leads to death, eternal death. Yahweh says the heart, just as much in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, is important. 1 Kings 8, 39. Then hear you in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive, and do, and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart you know. He knows our hearts. We can't escape it. We can't pretend. We can fool men all day long. You can't fool Yahweh can't do it he knows your heart for though even you only know your the hearts of children of men he says that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which he gave unto our fathers you can run you can run all day long but you can't hide he looks right into your heart you don't fool him when you do things that he displeased is displeased by In Zechariah 3, 3, we have a melding of prophecy. In, in rea- reality, is kind of tying in with Yahshua the Messiah as the high priest. This is kind of an interesting passage. I'm going to read it. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. That's what he does. Come before Yahweh. He's got the opposition man standing right there. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, O Satan, even Yahweh that has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. It is not, is not this the brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and I will clothe you with a change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. There's a transition taking place here. You see it? Transition. From a man and his sinful priesthood his sinful man, I should say, in his nature, into the same priesthood that Yahshua comes into. So he gets a mitre, and he gets pure clothing, clean clothing. And he causes his iniquity to pass from him. I see a transition, transition into Yahshua. And I said, let them set a mitre upon his head, and they did. 
And the angel of Yahweh stood by. We got a good article on the angel of Yahweh, by the way, in this magazine. I think Randy uh, wrote it. Um, if you don't get the magazine, it's all online. It's all on your app. Just click on it. Interesting. And the angel of Yahweh protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, if you will keep my charge, then shall uh, you also judge my house and shall keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. If you got a King James, branch is all caps. What does that mean? The branch. Joshua is called the branch. Who has the name here? Joshua. Same name, basically. In Hebrew, it's the same name. Zechariah 6.12 says, Joshua, whose name is the branch? The prophet of Joshua, the prophecy of Joshua. The prophet sees sin as filthy garments. Over and over again, we find in Scripture that metaphor, that sin is vile, defiling, wretched, and filthy, polluting what is pure. But then he's going to have the high priest, the righteous high priest, come in and take control. Ezekiel 20, 43. At judgment time, there shall... You remember your ways and all your doings, wherein you have been defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that you have committed. Ezekiel says that when the repentant sinner will loathe himself to see his dirty, rotten sin... It's defiling, and it's embarrassing, and it causes you to repent before Yahweh. Yet most think Yahweh is perfectly okay with them as they're living and their rebellion. That's fine. I'm, I'm doing okay. I would bet, I don't know what the percentage would be, but I bet just go out into the world and say, do you think you're doing okay? you think uh, what you're doing pleases the, your, your creator and I'll bet a good percentage, yeah, yeah, I'm doing fine. Well, how, how's it going to end up, you know, and ultimately when you, you know, pass on, what, what's going to happen? Oh, he'll be okay with me. I've lived, you know, I was kind to, to people and stray dogs, and you'll uh, be okay with me. Really? Have you ever read the Bible? <laughs> no, but I've heard about it. You know, the Hebrew word for sin, pesha, signifies the rebellion that's in the heart of every man and woman, even if they don't realize it. They're not living the right way. They're still living a different way. And they don't know it, most people, because they were never warned about it. Remember, going into the jungle, they don't know the dangers. It's epitomized by the Jews' rejection of uh, Jeremiah's divine message. He says, as for the word, this is in 44.16, that you have spoken unto us in the name of Yahweh, we will not hearken unto you. We're not going to listen to you. Who do you think you are? But we will certainly do whatever's in we think, you know, we think we want to do, going forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings, our, see our traditions, we can count on them. Our princes, the rulers, everybody in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, they're all doing it. What's the problem? For then... Had we plenty of eating, plenty of food, and we were well and saw no evil. Why should we change? We'll do exactly as we please. 
Yahweh has a desire that each of us repents of our sin to change our ways. Man, on the other hand, has a tremendous problem with repentance. It's so hard because he's so arrogant, so full of carnal nature. He can't repent. He can't humble himself. You ever seen these guys? They're supposed to bow and they only go down on one knee because they can't totally commit. They just can't do it. They're still man. They're still the human. There's still the nature in them. On the flip side, sin is what Yahweh hates more than anything else. Because guess what? When Adam and Eve made that sin in the garden and, and rebelled, that's what it was. It wasn't just the eating of something he said don't do. They were aligning themselves with the adversary. That's the big sin of what happened there. And that's why death happened on this earth. They were coming in alignment and taking the word of the adversary over Yahweh. They became followers of him, of the adversary, of Satan. Yahweh, in Habakkuk 1.3, he says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. He hates sin because sin separates us from him. He can't, he, he can't handle it. Because when you sin, you make a deliberate choice to go against him. And follow the other. Follow another. All sin does is cause pain. Yet millions choose it. Millions indulge in it. You know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and get the same results. That's what sin is. It never changes. It always has the same kickback every time you do it. Oh, it might be okay for a while. But eventually catch up, catches up with you. You know, sin may bring temporary gratification, but it always ends in misery and finally death and destruction. But the world will still choose it over Yahweh's command. When Yahshua comes back, what are they going to do? They're going to turn and fight Yahshua. They're going to turn and fight him. When he comes back to save Jerusalem and his world, they're going to turn on him. Why do you think they get so mad now with people who are trying to follow the truth? People that are going to church. Why do you think people get mad at them now? Because it's the same thing. They're going to do the same thing with Yahshua. They don't like it because they're not in it. And there's something about it that just grates at their nature. You see, it's in their heart, but they don't want any part of it. They want to be free. They want to do their own thing. They want to have the, the time to live the life they want, and they don't want anybody telling them differently. And no, the problem is they don't realize that sin is hard work. Planning sin takes time and energy. Yahshua said, come unto me, all you are labor, who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why are they labored and heavy laden? Because they're full of sin. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest from that. For one thing, I'll unload that sin from you. And your conscience will be free. And you'll feel totally different. Totally different. 1 John 2, 1. So what do we do if we've been in that situation? Maybe somebody's hearing a message for the first time. What do you do? 1 John 2, 1, it says, My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Yahshua the Messiah, the righteous. It means that if we turn to become a believer, 
we've got a support system. We have one who can forgive. One who's been through it. And we can repent and be converted. Should we slip? We have the blood of Yahshua to pick us back up again. Keep on going. As long as we learn by that sin, by that mistake. That's what we're looking for, brethren. We want to keep on going in the right way. When we read in 1 John 3, 4, that whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law. Whoever abides in him sins not. That means he doesn't keep on sinning. He stops it, doesn't do it again, and keeps going. That's repentance. If you happen to fail, he said he'll forgive. You know, the, the, the biblical message is forgive 70 times 7. That doesn't mean at 140 he stops or you stop. No, that just means if someone sincerely repents and asks for forgiveness, you have to do it. You have to do it. A believer may slip, but he should not continue in sin and remain a true worshiper. You know, sin is so egregious. You know, they say viruses are so sticky and they're so, what would you say? They have such a power to infect us. Just a small little exposure, some little tiny molecule of exposure. And we come down sick. Sin is that way. It's so egregious. It transfers our allegiance from Yahweh to Satan, and it starts to grow. If we let it go, it grows and grows within us. We start thinking on it. We start, it starts, uh, you know, uh, becoming part of a bigger thing in our life. And that's what happened in the garden, and that's what Yahweh didn't want. Don't even start it. Don't even go there, but they did. They did. He says, I'm going to deal with it right now. What you have done, I'm going to deal with it right now. So they had to heap a whole bunch of consequences on their sin. David, of course, the big, the big uh, one we always remember, he didn't get away with anything, what he did. And what he didn't do is blame somebody else. He knew. He could have said, Bathsheba, what is she doing out there in the daylight when everybody can see her? Hey, David. You could just turn around, not look. Yeah, I guess. So David was a problem, and he knew it. And then he took it many steps further, of course, and we know what happened then. But he didn't get away with it. The baby died that he had with her. He tried to get rid of her husband, and uh, that was another bad thing. And his family was never the same after that. He had murder within his family. His kids were never the same. You don't get away with it. See, sin has consequences. Righteousness also has blessings. You know, if we start living his way, we have blessings. We really do. So we can't ever minimize sin and the power that it has over us. We can't ever minimize. But we can overcome it through the blood of Yahshua and through the words of his, of his word. We can overcome even our own natures if we turn to him and... Accept the blood that he shed for us. May Yahweh bless you.